BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Welcome into the House of L podcast. I am Lawrence Holmes. Thank you so much for hanging out here with me. I wasn't even sure if I was going to do this particular episode of the podcast, but I think it's worth doing, and I wanted to have some space to kind of talk about a lot of stuff, and that's the beautiful thing about having your own podcast. You can do stuff like that. Before we get started, I wanted to... Thank our sponsor, Edrington Spirits. If you haven't checked out Noble Oak, you really need to. Noble Oak Whiskey, Bourbon, Rye. If you just go to Instagram, you can check out Noble Oak there. You can also go to NobleOak.com. What I love about them is for every bottle that is sold of Noble Oak, they will plant a tree. That is their mission. It's also fabulous. Whiskey, bourbon, and rye. If you want to step your game up, get your your liquor cabinet or liquor stand. I have a. I found this old table at a at a resale store a few years ago, and I was like, "Man, that would be perfect for a bar." Because I'm not. I wouldn't call myself like a mixologist. I don't drink very often, but it's nice to display the cool bottles that you get from all over the world, including something like Royal Oak. So wherever you've got your your liquor, you need to make sure that you've got a bottle of Noble Oak there as well. So go to the Facebook page if you're on the book. Go to Instagram if you're on the gram. You ever notice we don't call it the Twitter? But NobleOak.com. Check it out. Get a bottle. Tell us how good it is. I'll tell Shree how much people enjoy it when you get it. All right? Cool. Big thank you to Noble Oak for everything that they do for not just my podcast, but the other podcasts on House of L and the other podcast that we will soon be launching on House of L. I know I've been teasing about that, and I'm not ready to make an announcement just yet. Just know that we've got a couple of uh, interesting experiments that we're going to do with House of L over the next few months, and we're going to see what happens. That's kind of the beauty of this. This is one of the cool things about having this platform 
is you're able to try different combinations out. Like, oh, I wonder if what would happen if this person and this person did a podcast together. That's on the list of things that will happen this summer on House of L. There's also a couple of people that I think uh, need a bigger, I shouldn't say bigger, need more space to talk about things that they want to talk about. So they will have that chance on House of L before the summer is done. Along with me doing more stuff, I'm excited about a couple interviews that I got scheduled for the next few weeks on the podcast. So please, if you haven't told a friend, tell them to subscribe. Do me a favor, and if you could post a review, whether we're on Spotify or on Apple, that would help us tremendously. As weird as it sounds, I know it sounds stupid, it helps with placement. It makes the podcast easier to find. All right? Cool. So, May 8th, 1998, I walked into the the doors of the score as an employee. Most people think that I started out as an intern at the score. That is incorrect. I was hired. I was treated like an intern, but I was hired as a part-time producer back in, in 1998. I was hired on the same day as my good friend Dan Zampillo, who I used to do the Me and Z show with. So I was 22 years old. I was still working at a title insurance company, and I hated it. There are people who I think can handle, I don't know if anyone loves doing office jobs, but I think that there are people who are more equipped to handle office jobs, and I am not one of them. Looking back, in retrospect, I probably could have made a a good amount of money if I had buckled down and done title insurance, maybe maybe become a real estate lawyer, something like that. But this has been a really, I've been thinking a lot about this, like thinking about like what the 25 years of this career that I've had at the score got me and what it was like, like what it was like when we first walked in the door, when I first walked in the door back in 1998 and We were back on Belmont back then. We were right off of Belmont and Cicero. The building's still there. The antenna is still there. If you go over to Belmont Cragen and you can check out the the home of WXRT and and WSCR, I think the letters are still on the door. Like when you if you see it from the front, if you're, you're driving down Belmont, I'm pretty sure that you can still see it. And then the, the antenna is the back is in the back. Whenever you do something for a long time, you tend to look at a lot of the stuff from the beginning like very fondly. And I do too. Those were those were d- difficult times because I don't think that we had everything that we needed to be as successful as we wanted to be back then. But the world was changing. Like the internet was becoming a thing. Like I I was joking with someone, a friend from college, about us getting email addresses when we were freshmen and how that was 30 years ago and how big a deal that was to be like, oh, my God. And you had to go over to the computer lab because no one really had personal computers, that sort of thing. 
And when we were at the score, like we didn't have a lot. We were sharing the space. This the Belmont building is basically the size of a bungalow. So there wasn't a lot of room between us and XRT. Like we had to in some cases share editing booths and all of that stuff and it it became complicated back then. But I loved it. I I loved what I was learning. I loved that I walked in kind of in the my first day we were still reacting to Kerry Wood's strikeout game, his 20 strikeout game. We were still doing stuff on that. What had happened two days before? So it was cool to be, to jump right in. Like you're jumping right in into a big local sports story. The thing that always drew me to the score, I don't know if I've ever, I think I've told the story, but I'm not sure how many people know it or remember it or honestly care about it. I learned about the score in high school. At HF, we had this thing called adaptive PE. So, like if you were sick or you got hurt, you could take gym, but it was a different type of gym. So I had messed up my ankle like really, really badly. And I was in adaptive PE. And I was in adaptive PE with with Coach John Wren, a legend, someone who I hold in very high esteem. Won a state championship with the 95 HF team. Won three state championships down in Arizona. Uh, he, he coached Terrell Suggs Sizzle, School of Hard Knocks, while he was down there. Um, he was a big inspiration to me. I I always I I still like when I get an opportunity to talk with he usually uh, will hit me up on my birthday on Facebook and tell me happy birthday and I I admire the man greatly like he he was a big influence and he's a huge reason why I ended up at the score when I was in adaptive PE I he said have you heard because he knew that I was you know into not just into playing sports but I was into the sports broadcasting aspect of it. And I got into it because I got hurt. Like, that was one of the things that my mother was like, well, just because you can't play right now doesn't mean that you can't do anything about it. HF has a radio station. HF has a TV station that's getting ready to launch. But in adaptive PE and driver's ed, Coach Wren would have the score on. He's like, there's a sports radio. Like, it's all sports. Like, that's how long ago this was that that he was like, this is an all sports station. Can you believe it? So I'd always been, always had the score like in my mind, like as a high schooler. And when I went to college, I was kind of disappointed because DePaul radio wasn't even a 10th of what it is now. Like it's, it's I'm, I'm not even a hundredth of what it is now. It was a, 500 watt radio station in the bottom of U-Haul. I, mean, I could literally make a 500 watt radio station. Well, I guess I could order the stuff from Amazon instead of going to Radio Shack. But so I knew about the score when I was at DePaul. I interned while I was at DePaul at WMAQ, and the irony is, is that was 670. Like that was the big signal. That's the thing that we always wanted. 
when we were on 820 and 1160. We wanted a 24-hour, 50,000-watt station. And finally, we ended up getting it, and it was great. Like, once you saw a big difference in the way that the station was rated, the, the way the respect level for it. I wasn't there from day one. I was listening from day one, but I wasn't there. And I've noticed, I've seen a lot of the changes, like a lot of the changes that have happened and how it's grown. And, and I get it. Like We've been, for a long time, we were kind of the outlaws of, of sports thoughts inside of Chicago. Radio itself not really well respected or as well respected as what it meant back then to be a writer or what it meant to be on television. The television anchor, sports anchor back then was a a big deal with people like Jim Rose and Peggy Kaczynski and Mark G and Greco. That was a big deal being the sports person. So we had to grow, and we had to grow out of our infancy. So I would say that I walked into the score when we were, let's see, the station was six, and that's about the age of (laughs) the way that we all acted. Six years old. I had a lot of fun there in those days. It was super competitive. Everyone there... That was a producer, and that's how I started. Wanted to be something. Like you weren't just producing to produce. You were producing because you had an idea of what the, the next step was going to be. Matt Fishman, who runs a station. I think he still runs a station now. Maybe he runs one of the XM stations now. Spiegel was there. Hood was there. Zampillo was there. Festus was there. Um, God, there's we had a Jesse Rogers was there as an EP. So it was very competitive. Like just getting an opportunity to produce shows was a big deal back then, because everyone wanted to be able to put their spin on a show, and. If you caught the ear of Ron Gleason or Mike Alzamora, who was there at the time, you would you would get some airtime. Like once we expanded into nighttime, overnight, weekend programming with a twenty four hour signal, it it offered opportunities to do stuff. And I'm very lucky that I got there at a time when that was still a goal like a producer could say hey my goal is to be a host on the air and you could work towards doing it and you get got good feedback Ron Gleason was an incredibly good boss and for the most part the people who have run the score have been that way but Ron was was a guy who was on air so he kind of got it he kind of understood some of the the needs of the people who were on air. Now, some of that shit was outsized and ridiculous and 
all about ego, but but the things that we like needed needed. Ron was right there to to get it for us, and I thought that he did a good job of putting different voices on the air, for right or for wrong. Like the the, the personality disparity between someone like Murph and Tommy Williams is vast. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like that's a that's a big leap to have someone like Mike North on the air versus someone like I'm trying to think of a good because everyone's kind of different than North but to to have someone like North on the air and also have someone like Dan Jiggets and then partner them together this is brilliant this is good programming Ron put up with a lot of shit from us like I'm I'm happy that he's now like he retired earlier this year from radio he had been in charge of BBM for the longest time, but he put up with so much nonsense because it was, it was the wild West back then in sports radio and radio itself in the nineties still had a, a big, it was still built on ego. Not that it's not now. Like we, there are large egos. I'm one of them in radio, but the amount of power that people have, I'll, I'll put it to you this way. Back in those days, there were still people doing local radio in Chicago that were making a million dollars a year doing radio. Think about that. There isn't, there isn't anybody in Chicago. I think Eric was the last person that was making a million dollars a year doing radio. And back then, it was like him and Roe and Dahl like the making... Tons of money. Um, there's one score host that turned down a, a large chunk of change on their last contract, and I bet they really regret that. Because I, I believe it was going to be like $1.7 million over three years, and that person turned it down thought they were going to get more money somewhere else. I'm not going to say who, but you can probably figure it out. The producing stuff was so fun. And I really enjoyed, like, the level, like I was saying earlier, like, the competition. You had to bring your game if you were going to compete with people like Matt Spiegel, who was brilliant on the board. Like, his what he brings to it as a musician and the way that he hears sound. And we used to have to go through the... It was awful what we went through as producers back then because we were recording on reel-to-reels. We were recording on to carts. And it was time-consuming. The stuff that we used to do for a three-minute open to or two-minute open to a show, now you could knock that out in 30 minutes with digital. Like, I could even knock it out in 30 minutes. And it's been a minute since I've put some stuff together. But I do think that that's in big part because I did learn on a reel-to-reel and I learned about how you cut and splice tape and put it together and how you make it blend, make the sounds blend. And you have to have a creative thought and then run that thought through so that it all makes sense inside of your opens or drops or whatever else that you're going to do. 
that was fun. I spent time producing. I also worked in sales. I worked in sales for two years. Like while I was still producing and hosting part-time. So like this is 2000, 2001. I did sales and it was eye-opening. and It gave me a real sense of how the radio and the broadcasting business works. I think that anyone who goes into our business, I don't think you should have to do sales, but I do think that you should know about the process of selling. Because if you learn about the process of selling, you'll understand what is valuable to your program director, to your station manager, to your news director. You'll understand who your audience is, how they're selling to that audience. How do you tailor your your messaging or your show to grab the most people in that audience. I was having a conversation with some people the other day and I was saying that you always want more people. Like you love to have a, a bigger cumulative audience overall. But if you overserve your target audience, which for the score is I would say now it's actually men. It used to be men 25 to 54. I think it's probably 35 to 64 now. But men 25, 60, 54 is like the desirable demographic for sports radio. It's kind of what our sales departments sell off of. And once you understand that, it can help to kind of change the way that you go about programming a show. Like what... Who are you talking to? Like, I think about it a lot where I was, when I finally got on air in 2003, like full time, I was inside the demo. I was 28. I was on the young end of the demo. Now I'm, I'm not at the end, but you know what's funny? I was thinking about this this past week, the concept of relative relevance Howard Stern was complaining that he went to an NBA game and the players didn't know who he was. Now, Howard's been on satellite now for, what, 20 years? Those young men are probably not... They're probably not listening to satellite radio. And if they are, they're not listening to Stern, even though Stern is the whole reason that Sirius is able to exist. Make no mistake about it. The subscriptions that he brings in from his target audience, those people who still want to listen to Howard be Howard, and he's evolved, you know, as a as a person and as a host. But the the target audience for Howard Stern, I I bet it's 45. I bet his target is 45 to 70. Cuz those are people who on the young end, like me, like I'm 47, got got a, got wind of Howard in the 90s and still follow him. And then there are the people that were there with him in the 80s and the 70s. So it's it's all relative. Yeah, he's the king of all media. But the king of all, how old is Howard? Is he 65, 66 years old? The, the king of all media, I don't, I don't know why he would think that he would be relevant to Jason Tatum or, you know, Joel Embiid, 
Joel Embiid doesn't know who Howard Stern is. Maybe he does now, but it I'm sure it was an eye-opening thing for him because he's one of America's most popular, if not the most popular radio person in the history of the genre. But it, it tells you about changing times and changing tastes. And I think about that when it comes to my own career and whether or not when my contract is, is up in two years, whether or not at, will I want to keep going when I'm 50? Will I think that, will there be a relevance that I find important enough to keep going and doing this? Will my voice still resonate the way that it has resonated? I already got these young dudes out here calling me old. You don't know anything, you're old. I'm like, okay. That's cool. But right now, I still feel like I'm at the top of my game. But in two years, maybe I want to do something else. But the other thing is, is how will the industry change in two years? Because that's that's some crazy stuff. (laughs) Like it changes every single... Every few mo- every six months, I feel like there's some sort of seismic change. The good thing is that the score is still really healthy. Our show's doing well. Dan and Layla are great partners, and we've put up phenomenal numbers. I won't get into the specifics, but just say that your boy hit a whole bunch of bonuses since joining up with Dan, and it has been lucrative. And we thank you for your support. I know I'm jumping around here like House of Pain when it comes to the history aspect. So why don't we take a quick timeout? And when we come back, I want to talk about what I think really changed my career for the better. So it's 2003. I'm working on the Murph and Fred show as the executive producer. And I had some trepidation about taking that job. At the time, I didn't really know Maddie. I didn't know Maddie. I knew him a little bit, but I kind of felt like I was stepping on his toes because they asked me to come in and be EP. And I had been in sales and been kind of, you know, hanging around. And he had been working as an intern and as an AP on the show. But we got over that pretty quickly and, and I think became a great team um, I I think about those days of working with Maddie very fondly because of what we were asked to do, how we were asked to do it, and the t- the type of I never met a personality or had to manage a personality like Matt Abaticola. and I I loved it. And one of our interns from that time was John Momola who's a now the program director for a station in Tampa. During that time, who else came through? Nick Friedel came through the score. Cassidy Hubberth came through the score. Jason Benetti came through the score. A lot of talent, man. A lot. Wayne Randazzo a couple years later. Like, we've had a lot of really talented people. Chris Ranji. 
all the producers like Jay Zawoski and but they asked me if I wanted to be a reporter. And at first I was like, no, nah, I'm a talk show host. Like I, I, that's where I saw my career going. I didn't see it being me as a as a reporter. I'm like that I looked at who was reporting and they weren't hosting. George and Shu and Jesse, Jesse occasionally was hosting, but he was doing like crazy radio when he got a microphone. I'm glad that he found himself as a reporter because the talk show host, some of the stuff, no diss, Jesse, but some of the stuff you would ask us to do for you as producers, I'm like, what the hell is this dude talking about? And I, I didn't want to go down that road where I wasn't going to get airtime as a host. You feel me? So, but it was it a significant raise. You got to understand, even as an executive producer, as an executive producer, and this is 2003, it's 20 years ago, man. I was making, I think at the time, $32,000 a year. And that was only because I had done it for, like, I had experience. So it was a significant raise. I think I got, I think I got raised up to like $55,000 a year. I thought I was rich as hell. But being a, a reporter changed everything for me. My first assignment was the Cubs. Mar- like, I, I literally had to produce. Like, one of my last days producing was the goddamn Bartman game. And that was horrible the next morning. But a couple days later, I was out booking guests. I got Jack McKeon on. And he was great. Like, he was awesome. Dealing with Jack McKeon was awesome because he totally circumvented the PR staff from the Marlins because I had asked in a respectful way. And the PR staff from the Marlins kept, like, blowing it off and blowing it off. And Jack was like, get those guys on the – like, I was literally in the dugout with just Jack McKeon. He was smoking a cigar, and I was like, Jack, you know, can we do the interview? He's like, get those guys on the phone. I'll do it right now. Got Jack on the phone. He was awesome. He was super sweet, like just a sweetheart of a guy. And then that following fall was my first season covering the Bears. And that was that was it. That was the thing. Covering the Bears, what I like to refer to as the city hall of sports. Like that's the beat that you want to be on. As much as I love baseball, baseball being my favorite thing, more people care about the Bears than anything. And there's a big collective of people who care about the Bears, so they care about what it is you're reporting. And I got really great advice from people who had done it before, and I was able to work with Dave Kerner, who recently retired, and he showed me the ropes on how to do it. I got to work and compete, I would say, with Zach Zaidman, who was doing stuff for BBM at the time. And seeing how he was doing things. But the, the biggest leap came because the Boers and Bernstein show wanted a Bears report. A Bears hit. Two words. Because if, if you look and you put Bears hit together and make it one word, it makes a very different word. That's why we always say that with Cubs hit, Bulls hit, Bears hit. Get it? Anyway. They wanted a Bears report every day at 5 o'clock. Every day. Monday through Friday, 5 o'clock, Bears report. 
And it was a big deal because Dan had been the Bears beat reporter. There's a pretty good lineage of Bears beat reporters at the score. When you talk about Mike Greenberg, Dan Bernstein, Dave Kerner, Zach Zaitman, myself. Look at what Grody's doing with the beat. I think he's doing a great job with it. It's a pretty good lineage. And so Dan wrote me this beautiful, like, handwritten, like, two-page letter about expectations, about what they needed for their show and what they expected. And by then, you know, Maddie and Z is on that show. Maddie ends up getting promoted a little bit later on on that show. And they just, they said the Bears report was mine to create. And that, that changed my whole shit up. Like, I didn't have to follow the way that things were done before. I could choose, and they were trusting that I could be the eyes and ears at Hallis Hall and tell people what the biggest story was of the day. What was the most interesting thing? The thing that I always tell to, to people who want to report is... There's a lot of surface stuff that comes out from teams. Like, if you want to report all the transactional shit, that's fine. That's what Twitter is there for. Oh, so-and-so goes on the IL. Yeah, people need to know that part of it. What's the stuff that that the reader can't see or hear? Bring that to your reporting. Tell us something that we don't know. Guys, they're very excited about Justin Fields. I bet they are. Why? Why are they excited about him? What was it? What was it that you heard? Who to, who was talking to you about this? And why were they talking to you about it? And so that developed because Dan and Terry were totally like, take the, the, the report and make it your own thing. And it's huge. It was really huge. And it was a quantum leap. The more I started to go out and cover stuff, whether it was bears or I kind of, it's funny because I kind of got known as a bears guy as a football guy, even though in my heart I'm a baseball guy. And that's still the case. I host a lot of football shows, whether it's on radio or on television, but in my heart I'm a baseball. Even Ozzy refers to me as a baseball. When he see me at the ballpark back then, he'd be like, what the fuck are you doing here? <laughs> like, you cover football, right? And I'm like, well, I cover baseball too. But that played a huge role in my development. Another thing that played a huge role in my development was Mitch Rosen being the program director. Now, our guy Drew, who used to be the PD before, he was a fan of mine and he gave me plenty of opportunities. And I, I, I'm not trying to act like he didn't, but Mitch really cultivated or allowed me to cultivate my sound on the air and kind of understood what I was trying to do. And that's important. Like getting a program director to understand what you're doing is really, really important. And he kept kind of giving me opportunities and like, hey, do you want to do this? Do you want to do that? And then we end up in 2009 where I'm doing the show with Hamp. And I know that the show failed. Like it's, it's, it's a, honestly like a dark period in my career because it failed and because I've always felt like I wasn't good enough to make it work. 
that if you if I was five years more into the business, I probably would have been able to make that work. And it, I look at it as the greatest failure of my career. Because it could have worked. And now, like, looking back on it, I understand how it could have worked. But back then, I thought I was ready, and I wasn't. So I, I take a lot of responsibility for that show not being all that it could be. But Mitch, when he made the decision to go to bring Mac back, and, and he's like, look, like, what do you want to do? He's like, I get that he's like, I get that you're upset. He's like, I want you to take the weekend. I want you to come come back and do the nighttime show. And I want you to, to go hard when you get the opportunity. And I mean, I I was a wreck after Hampton Homes was dissolved. And I remember I remember vividly going back to my condo in Kenwood and just crying. Like covering my head with a blanket even though no one else was there and just crying because it was, it was, I was a failure. The show failed and I was a failure. So once, once Mitch was like, Hey, take the weekend, come back. Let's, let's get this nighttime show going. You know, I believe in your talent. Let's get this nighttime show going. And he teamed me up with Joe Ostrowski and Joe had been, he had been working on the morning show, but things didn't work out for him on the morning show. So it was like we were these two exiles, you know? And we were working together, and that was the energy with which we went after it on our show. It was, it was okay, we've got an opportunity to build our own thing. I really like, I really like doing the nighttime show. And I, part of the reason I liked it is because there was a creative freedom to it that you didn't have in other spaces. One, because I was a solo host. And two, because the bosses weren't really listening. Like, they were kind of listening, but they weren't really listening. And I'm so grateful to Joe because he was like, we can do whatever we want. And we should, like, we should build a fun, smart show. And we did that. I always felt like one of the things that I wasn't good at on air, I, was, I felt like I was good in, in locker rooms and clubhouses. I wanted to be a better interviewer, so I made that, like, a thing. Like, I was listening and watching interviews from all over the country and you know, picking and choosing, like, parts of the style, like, how Dan Patrick is so straightforward with his questioning and how Howard Stern makes people feel really, really comfortable in his space and gets them to say, like, crazy shit because he's able to do that. How Steve Dahl is, was always on top of what his guest was doing and was able to do it. Or, like, even people in, in FM like Tom Joyner like listening to interviews that Tom Joyner would do and how empathetic he always sounded and how interested he was in the music of a musician or, or the movie that an actor, like that enthusiasm for the guest that was involved. But 
Joe played a big role in that and like set up is like you can go longer like you're a solo host like you can go longer with these interviews do the interview that you want to do just don't do the cookie cutter interview and it turned out to be great and and during this time like I've had incredible producers like like Joe and Chris Tannehill and Herb Lawrence my man and Rogi and Ray Diaz who was the last last producer of my solo show uh, which ended last year when I joined Dan and, and we are doing this Bernstein and Holmes thing. I, I've i had just like, and I, I know that I'm going to not mention people and it's not because I'm trying to slight them. I mean, with my EPs that I've had, I've trusted them. Like just, I'm throwing, like asking Tony Gill to just do whatever he wants which is dangerous, and sometimes you have to, like, with him in particular, you have to reel it back in, but it's been really fun. And now, deep into my career, 24 years into my career, I get this opportunity to team up with someone and do it on a daily basis. And since the Hampton Homes project, that hadn't happened. But I will say that I when I was doing television, I've done a, I started doing television in 2011 at Channel Five, and then that turned into me working at 120 at AKA Stadium Network, and my time with Laura Britt and Michael Kim and Tyler Fulgham working there, like really gave me appreciation for you don't have to do it by yourself, like you can you can team up with people and, and it'll be fun and you can have a good time. And so I was thinking about that when the, the opportunity came for me to join Dan, I was thinking, man, this could be a lot of fun and we can make it fun. And so far it's been a lot of fun, but I've, I've just been surrounded by a lot of creative people and it's made this journey wild like it's like the whole thing is crazy like to spend more time of my life at the score than I've been living you know like 25 years of the score 22 years before I got to the score so you like that's wild to me wild and when you get to a place like this you really at least I am I'm starting to think about like, well, you've done a ton of exploration while still having the security of staying at home. At some point, are you going to bow out and go do something different? And I think that the answer to that is probably yes. But as I said before, like, you know, there's two more years on my deal and who knows what the industry looks like. I mean, if you're cutting off, if you're laying off 3,000 people from ESPN, like, what does what is sports as an industry look like in three years, in five years? I don't know. I'm fascinated by it, and I talk to students about it all the time. But I've loved it. I've loved, I've loved what the score has grown into. There is a part of me that likes the idea that the score, in some cases, is feared. 
we we've gone a long way from being the butt of jokes. And you ask the the people that were there at the beginning. Ask them what people said on how I would fail and how it was a no-win situation, how it would never work, how sports radio, sports on the radio, that'll never work. And here we are 30 years later, and look at the careers that it's launched and continues to launch. Now we're a little bit more multimedia. We're doing things on Twitch, which I really, really like. We're doing video stuff. Our video department at the score is top notch. Kevin Lapka, Connor O'Donnell, like they do incredible stuff for us. And we're getting out there in new places. But I also understand, like I, I get it. It was like I, it was, I said to one of my younger critics on Twitter a couple weeks ago. I like, I'll be gone soon. Like you'll get your wish. I'll be gone from whatever platform you think that I'm on. Will you be ready to take the spot by then? And I'm not sure that you would. Um, One person I haven't mentioned yet, and I'll mention now, is my man Jason Goff, who is my favorite talk show host. I think the man is incredible. I love his podcast. I I love who he is when he's on the radio because it's the same dude that he is when he's out in these streets. And I always loved the way that he could, like I admired the way that Jason can touch the audience. Even if you disagree with him, you feel him. And I think that that, that takes an incredible skill that not a lot of talk show hosts have. Like he, you can tell that he paid attention when his parents came here from Belize and they were listening to Dave Baum and how he did his his stuff. And Jason kind of adding little pieces of everyone that he had encountered, just kind of adding stuff to what makes him unique as a person. I hate the way that things ended. For Jason at the score. And you know I. Went on a 25 minute screed. After that. And he knew. He knew how I felt about it. I also think that he. He played a huge role. In launching House of L. Like those episodes with Jay. After Jay. Got let go. Those are still the highest. Listened to episodes. Of House of L. Four years later. Almost five years later. But I love that he continues to do his thing, whether it's on NBC or on his podcast on The Ringer. But the guy is an extremely talented talk show host. And if he wants another chance at local radio, I don't even know if he does. If, you, if he wants another lo- a chance at local radio, I hope he gets it. Because I think that he's, I think he's the best. I think he's, an incredible talk show host. And I really admire him. And it's great to see people, all of our people, all the folks that 
like when you come into a place like the score and you're so young and you see everyone else around you who's so young and then you see them succeed, it's it's a wonderful feeling. Like seeing Wayne Randazzo succeed in the way that he has when you knew that he was putting in the work and you knew that just being an update anchor wasn't all he was going to be. Seeing someone like Maggie Hendricks take her style of working, like just being a genuinely nice person and turning that into what she's doing now. You know, fighting the good fight for a long time and and going through the struggle and, and still being able to do it. Seeing someone like Tony Gill, who's this weird kid that, like someone dropped him off on our doorstep and now he is a boss. <laughs> like like Tony's a boss. Like Tony makes decisions and deals with budgets and stuff now. To see people succeed, seeing what Joe has become, seeing where Herbie has become, seeing that Ranji's like holding it down in St. Louis. I still wish that Ranji would have been given an opportunity. I mean, I I know that's probably like my opportunity that I'm giving away, but he's that's another guy who I think is a super good talk show host. At some point, I am going to convince Chris Ranji and Layla Rahimi to do a podcast together. Because in my mind, that's the killer podcast. Those two playing off of each other with the same level of snark and like their friendship is real tight. So I think it, I think it'll play well. I'm going to convince them. Mark my word. I'm going to convince them. Let me thank you as I wrap up my rambling. I really appreciate the support that I've gotten from people from the first time that I cracked the microphone till social media and people being able to say how much they like or don't like the show. To even seeing people on the street, I ran into a guy yesterday. I was just going for a walk. Like, I just, you know, I do it often. And this guy, like, stopped his car. He's like, man, I listen all the time. And, and, you know, I talked to him for a little bit. This bus driver stopped the bus and wanted to tell me how much, on Stony Island, like, wanted to tell me how much he loved the show. And it's appreciated. I've been very lucky to be spend my entire radio career in my hometown. Talking about the teams that I care about. It's not that I don't care about what's going on nationally, but it, after doing, what, six months of national radio, I, I'm not saying that I would never do it again, but it's a bit of a cheat code. <laughs> like, there's so much, and the formula for... The formula to be successful at it is pretty easy. The formula to be successful in a local market that's as competitive as Chicago is, is not. You might look at it as, well, you're competing against 1,000. Like, yeah, to a certain extent, but you're also competing in-house. Like, Mully and Haw have really good programming. It's different from what Dan and Layla and I do, but it's really good. Danny and Speaks, like, they do crazy shit and sometimes you're like man 
I wonder if we could get away with doing some of that crazy shit. And even even some of the people that have grown or are now op- having opportunities to do more stuff like Gabe Ramirez and Big Ann Heron, um, you hear it and you're like, man, that's good. Like that person is really on to something. Like they've they've got a good idea and they're on to something. Knowing the the power that we've had as a radio station and the connection that we have with the listener, it's a, it's a that medium is very intimate. Knowing that intimate medium still resonates with listeners is fantastic, and so I thank you for giving me the support of the last twenty five years. There's two more that's on the docket, and then we'll see where we go from there. But I've loved the challenge of growing into this role. And now at 47, being able to look back at all of it and going, wow, it's great. Like, I've met wonderful people. I met the woman that I married at the score. You know? That... It's been a wonderful, wonderful thing. And I like that I'm now in a place where I can work with younger people that hopefully, like a guy like Adam Studzinski, like hopefully he can keep me relevant so I don't have that moment of relative relevance that Stern had. And when I do, then it's just like gracefully bow out and go teach school. Or produce podcasts or whatever the hell I'm going to do. Or comic books or whatever. All is still on the docket. But I'm super appreciative of everything that came about from the 25 years. That that 22-year-old that walked in with a lot of confidence and was probably overconfident. To the guy that's there now that has developed anxiety. <laughs> It is uncomfortable in public. Uh, <laughs> it's been really great, and I thank you sincerely for putting up with me and putting up with my nonsense and this hour of me talking about myself, my navel-gazing that's going on. Thanks for listening. Thanks to our sponsor, Edrington Spirits. Maybe I'll have some Noble Oak to celebrate the 25 years. It seems like a good idea, right? Like a, a good bottle of Noble Oak whiskey. You should get some too. NobleOak.com. Go to the Facebook page of Noble Oak. Go to their Instagram. It's a good way to celebrate all things. Should I do a whole episode on just being Merce producer? Maybe that's in the cards for another time. I'll talk to you next time. Hey!